The following message is by Dr. J.R. Cuevas, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Good morning, everybody. It is a, it's a privilege for me to uh, continue on in preaching through this book of Luke, as uh, the other pastors have done for the last several months. And uh, I have the particular assignment. Normally, um, when I do come up here and preach, on a Sunday, uh, from this pulpit, uh, I am given the choice to pick uh, the passage to preach from. Obviously, this one's this Sunday's different as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and um, I'm going to pick up where we left off. And so, if you can take your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter five, I want to say that this one is the most important passage so far. But uh, <laughs> turn to Luke chapter five, and we are going to be going through verses 17 through 26. And let me read it. Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, surprise, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately, he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who we can see clearly through your word. And I pray that as we go through this next hour, that his portrait, who he is and what he came to do and how he accomplished it, would become clear to us that our hearts would respond in saving faith if they haven't already, that our hearts would be encouraged to continue in the faith if we have. We ask for your Holy Spirit's blessing upon us to receive these words with humility and to be doers of them and to apply them and to share them as we go forth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as a reminder, we have a, a, a fellowship meal after uh, the Sunday sermon where we're going to give you a debriefing of what happened on the Honduras missions trip. And I already went up and shared from my perspective what it was like when we were there because uh, I had kind of a neat experience, which is the same experience I had in Argentina several years back. And, uh, and that's uh, the experience of everybody thinking I was Honduran. Um, 
and would keep speaking to me in Spanish. And in fact, when we saw someone from one of the islands there, uh, Pastor Bob said, it's your dad. Um, and, uh, and maybe he was. Uh, who knows? That week I came back. Um, I was at a restaurant, a Thai restaurant, with uh, one of the members here from church. And you'd think that that aura would have gone away. But the, uh, the restaurant manager came up to me, and she was either the waiter or the manager. Uh, there were only two people there. And without even asking me what I wanted to order, she said, or asked, what nationality are you? And I said, take a guess. And she said, you're South American. And I said, nope. I said, I am Filipino. And she hit me in the shoulder and said, you're kidding. And I said, 75% Filipino, 25% Chinese. Can you get my order, please? <laughs> um, afterwards, as we were leaving, as I was leaving the restaurant, she hollers from the kitchen and goes, bye-bye, Filipino, see you soon. I am. I am um, culturally, at least. I was born and raised in the Philippines, lived there for the first, uh, for the better part of the first nine years of my life. I remember what it was like growing up there vividly. Um, we did move to Hawaii when I was nine years old, uh, which is why I'm having trouble wearing the suit this morning. But uh, and I do remember the kind of problems that you face um, living in the upper tier of what's a third world country for the most part, um, kidnapping for ransom, uh, not necessarily for sadistic molestation, but kidnapping for ransom was at an all-time high. At that point in the early 90s, it was rated the highest in the world. And so obviously as kids, as an eight, seven, eight, nine-year-old, we weren't allowed to go anywhere by ourselves. Um, heat and humidity was comparable to India. It was such a huge problem. Air conditioning wasn't a prevalent thing back then. I would sweat seemingly perpetually so much and would smell because of it to the point where my mom decided to one day wash my hair with lemon juice to try to get rid of the stench because I wouldn't stop sweating and it wouldn't stop smelling. Uh, there was the problem of electricity. Um, blackouts happened seemingly at any time. That was a big thing for us when we moved to the US was, wow, where does all this electricity come from? And where does all this clean water come from? Because back there, we weren't allowed to drink the water except um, if you bought filtered bottled water, which is why I spent most of my childhood drinking Capri Suns and milk and chocolate milk. Um, not low-fat, not non-fat, but full-fledged milk, and that showed its effects later on in life. Pollution was a huge problem uh, in the air and in the ground. Flooding was a big problem uh, whenever there were several inches of rain because of the irrigation issues. Um, school was many times canceled. All the cars and traffic would be backed up. And I remember noticing all these problems growing up, and many of those actually went away when we did move to the United States, finally. Uh, but uh, there was an issue, there was a real problem that I remember as a young boy uh, going to sleep thinking about every night and thinking, I am not quite sure what to do about this problem. And it had to do with uh, my Roman Catholic upbringing. We weren't saved, we weren't Christians. But the Catholic Church, they don't teach the right doctrine about the gospel, they do teach certain things that are indeed biblically true, namely God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. Heaven and earth, or heaven and hell, 
I should say, exists, and sin exists. And once my brother got saved, and he started to do what Christians, I guess, are supposed to do with their younger siblings, which is he would open up the Bible and read it to me and explain it to me. I was in first grade, and he was in fifth. Um, The Word did its job, and I remember thinking, um, I am a sinner, and I do have sin And if people get punished for their sins, then I do not know what to do about my sin. I would try to convince myself that perhaps God would be more gracious to me because I was a child. I would convince myself that maybe God would be more gracious to me and exonerate me from my thought life. But I do remember thinking, I am a sinner by deed and by thought. And if God were to hold my sins against me, then I would have no hope in the age to come. And I would think, if only someone could just prove to me that my sins were forgiven, I would be okay. Because those problems, those thoughts, I guess, would plague me for the next 10 years, even after moving to the United States. And I remember thinking when we did finally move to your paradise place, namely Hawaii, that The kidnapping was gone, the heat and humidity was still there, but we had air conditioning, electricity was there, clean water was there, clean beaches were there, pollution wasn't a problem anymore, flooding wasn't a problem, but I would still go to sleep at night thinking, I don't know what to do about my sin. I need to know how I can get rid of it and how it can be forgiven because I don't want to stand before the God who I was taught about and have unforgiven sin because I know what the consequences are. Now, we live in a cursed world with all sorts of problems, and you can name them all. We have physical problems. Uh, every, I mean, you, you realize after a while, stuff start, just starts to hurt. Stuff doesn't work the way it used to. Uh, viruses are flying all over the place. There are financial problems. We never have enough money, and we, when we do have enough, someone always seems to want it. <laughs> There's political problems. Heading into the election season, it's a good idea to turn Facebook off unless you want to get angry. Because everybody seemingly is corrupt, especially at that level. There's relational problems. People are, <laughs> people are irritating, you realize, after you get to know them. People are great when you know them partially. Can't stand them when you know them fully, right? I say that facetiously, but in another sense, it's true. There are problems with work. That's, I don't have to explain that. Just get up in the morning and go and it's a problem. We have civil problems. There's traffic, there's pollution, there's crime. There's Amazon packages now that are being stolen at your doorstep. Um, And I I really thought through this. Life in one sense is like one big math homework assignment. It's filled with problems and they get harder and harder as you get better and better. And uh, and I remember tutoring this one student uh, and he was a seventh grade student doing pre-algebra. And he asked how far in math I had gone, and I said, well, I, I do tutor high school and college students, and I showed him a calculus book and a statistics book from college, and he said, are you saying that I'm one day going to have to do that? And I said, life gets harder as you get better at it, and life really does feel that way. The more you progress, ignorance is bliss, childhood is bliss, you go through life and the problems don't stop, and they get harder and harder and harder. And we look to Jesus and I think rightly so, to address these problems. We pray about everything and anything, 
The problem is not that we look to Jesus to fix our problems. The problem is that we forget what the real problem in life actually is. And when we think about the things that we pray about, the things that we ask for prayer about, the things that we consume our minds with, that we want to be freed from, when we think of the problems in life, a lot of times, the last thing we're thinking of is our own personal sin. And the last thing we're asking Jesus to address in our lives is the problem of our sin. And yet, that's exactly why he came. And the reason why this account is here is so that we could look to Jesus to forgive us of our sins. Because number one, that is why he came. And number two, he alone has the power to do it. Apart from him, sin is forever going to be an issue. Apart from Jesus Christ and responding to him the way we're supposed to, we will enter into eternity with unforgiven sin, and God will deal with it the way he said he would as someone who was faithful to himself. And the reason why this passage is here is so that when you think about Jesus Christ, whatever conception of him you've had, good or bad, when you think about Jesus Christ from what you know about what the Bible says to be true about him, you would look to him to deal with your sins, namely through forgiving it, because that's why he came, and he alone can actually do it. And two reasons. Number one, it's his priority to forgive you of your sins. That's why he came to do it. And number two, he has the authority to do so, which is why we place our hope in him. Let's look at the first one, his priority. Look at verses 17 through 20, and here you'll see an act of desperation, and all of a sudden, this forensic declaration of sins forgiven. It says, one day he was teaching, which is what Jesus primarily did. People wanted to see him heal, but he would say, we're going to another town, even though everybody wants me to heal them here, because I need to preach and teach there, because that's why I came to do. He had the power to heal. He was primarily a teacher, teaching God's truth, teaching the good news about himself and the kingdom of God. And there were some, this is key, Pharisees, religious party, the purists, the separatists, religious denomination here, and teachers of the law, the people who were by function in charge of teaching the law to the Jewish society, sitting there. The keepers, the teachers, the interpreters of the law, the most esteemed and the most respected and the most feared, and even though the Pharisees were a small group, they were likely one of the most influential, if not the most influential, religious society at that time. And they were separatists. So these were your version of the Reformed, the Reformed people. And they were purists. So they were your version of the, Re the Reformed Puritan people. And they were all here. And not just that, this is a high-profile event. Because look, it says they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Those cities weren't that close together, if you look at it geographically. So this wasn't just a local regional, this wasn't just a local thing, it was a regional thing. And the only thing I can think of that comes close to this, where you have Reformed purists all gathering together from different regions to hear teaching from a single pulpit, is the Shepherds Conference, or the T4G Conference. And these things are high-profile events, and they're here because they hear of this man, Jesus, who is the son of Joseph, who grew up with no formal education, at least not in the law, and he's the son of a carpenter, and he's teaching with authority unlike them, and so they're here to see, to watch, 
and potentially to criticize and find fault with him in case he says anything that goes against what they've been teaching the people. This is a significant occasion. Uh, it's not a small... There were times where Jesus is, a, is accounted for, recorded in small profile settings, low profile settings, like when he interacted with Mary and Martha in their home, him and two other people and maybe a couple other servants. But this, is, this isn't one of those. This is a high profile event. And then... Some men, doesn't say their names, doesn't say what they did for a living because I guess they weren't important or that information just isn't important. It said there were some men, in verse 18, carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. Now, I've, I've thought about what this is like now because there are two things from a health perspective that I'm afraid to go through um, as a young person. One is blindness. I just cannot, I can't imagine um, living without seeing. Taste is fine, get rid of it. I'll have, less, I'll have more self-control over my eating then. But blindness is an issue, and paralysis is another, especially as a man, especially as a younger man. And I see this with young kids. Um, all kids are active, boys especially. You get a bunch of boys together, and all they want to do is run and punch and scream and do stuff that basically gets them to move and then you get men's events together, and there has to be, to keep, to keep the men happy, adult men happy, there has to be some kind of sports activity to get people to actually move. And it's because men, in some ways, males, have been given a God, God gave them the natural desire to want to move and compete uh, and spread whatever wings they think they have. Um, and to think that a man was paralyzed and to try to think what was going through that man's mind and, and how he would watch everybody go about their daily activities and he was stuck on a bed. Um, the, the closest I can think to what this felt like was back in high school where I sprained my ankle right at the beginning of tennis season and uh, it was a bad sprain. I was on crutches and the doctor said, no tennis for you for the whole season. Uh, I later went to a sports doctor who said otherwise. Um, he said, in two weeks, you're fine. And I think that's the reason why I still have a bad right ankle today. But I do remember thinking, this is so miserable because it's so hard to watch everybody playing to, and for me to just be sitting here. And, and that's tennis. What is the value of taking a fuzzy yellow ball and hitting it over and over again over a net with a graphite instrument and doing it for two hours? Actually, it is valuable. Um, that's for another story. But here's someone who was paralyzed. He wasn't an outcast necessarily. He wasn't considered unclean. But he's left out of the daily life and activity of society. And that is not easy to be in. doesn't say he's old, but he is a man, most likely a grown adult man experiencing this. And the men who were with him couldn't get him to walk, obviously, so they carried him on this bed and you look at the picture here, it says, and, and this is the picture of desperation, right? They wanted to see Jesus. The place was crowded. They were carrying a man on a bed who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in to set him down in front of Jesus, but not finding a way. Number one, what are they doing with him in public? Usually if you're paralyzed like this, you stay, you stay in your home where you can be cared for. Carrying someone around on a bed is a potential health hazard because you could drop them out of the bed and they get worse than they were before. 
But here they are, they understand who Jesus is. It's their conception of who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he's, what he's capable of doing. And they take a risk and they take him out and they risk his physical safety by carrying around town, trying to find Jesus. And it should have been a cue. It should have been from a societal standpoint. It should have been a cue. There's no room. Go home. They were trying to bring him in, but they couldn't. And so what do you do, right? This wasn't a handicap accessible home. And so they did what every well-meaning group of friends, I guess, is supposed to do, which is they risked his health even more. It said, not finding a way to bring him in, and maybe people had actually told them, maybe you have to go home now. It's dangerous for him to be here. Because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher. Now, the roof at those, in those kind of homes, it was the second floor, didn't have a hole necessarily in the middle of the roof. You went up there through a stairs to get some fresh air, but there was no hole because people didn't want to fall through the hole. And so they likely had to dig out a hole. And remember, Jesus is right underneath them. And so they're, they're now risking not just his physical health, but some, at least the social enigma that comes with it, you're interrupting the teacher while he's teaching by drilling a hole on the roof that he's under. And I, I feel this where, honestly, if someone did that right now, I would be really annoyed. If they tried to get to me and I said, I need to teach right now, and out of desperation, they drilled a hole right on top of there and put someone in front of me who I could do nothing for. The last thing I want as a teacher in my, in my estimation, while I'm teaching, is to be interrupted by anybody, including you. <laughs> um, and I mean, you're, they're on top of the roof. Your health insurance goes up if you say you do work on top of roofs. And here they are, they're bringing a paralyzed guy up, they're drilling a hole, and they're going to put him through the hole and put him right in front of Jesus. That is an act of total desperation, but that's because those men and that paralyzed man, who I'm sure had a say in what was supposed to happen to him, he could have said, please don't do this to me. But it said when Jesus saw their faith, so the paralyzed man, most likely himself, actually he did believe in who Jesus was, and he told his friends, maybe he forced his friends to do it. Maybe they didn't want to do it, but they did it, and they set him down in front of Jesus. This is a humble act. It's thematic in Luke. What happened to Simon Peter when Jesus got those fish to go into the net? He fell down at his feet and said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You fall down at the feet of someone who's more powerful than you, who has life and death in his hands. You see the leper, the social outcast, not supposed to be there, not supposed to touch anybody, especially a Jewish rabbi. And he fell on his face and said, Lord, if you are willing, that is desperate faith. You can make me clean. Would you dare ask Jesus if he's willing to make you clean? And Jesus did it. And then later on in Luke chapter 7, a prostitute. Oh, you, you don't leave your place if you were a prostitute. And especially when they're going to be Pharisees and leaders in the midst of that. She went to his where he was, began to wet his feet with her tears on his feet and kept wiping them with her hair, knowing that she was going to get some remarks, but knew that Jesus would defend her, and she would keep kissing his feet. And then later on, you'll see a bleeding woman 
not supposed to be out. If you were bleeding like that for 12 years, number one, you stay home with people who can take care of you. Number two, you're considered unclean. You don't go out in the crowds and you don't touch the teacher like that. But she thought, if I only just touched the edge of his garment, that's what she believed about him, I would be healed. She did, power came out of him, and Jesus said, who touched me? And they said, the crowd is pressing on you, and you're asking who touched you. And he said, who touched me? And she came trembling and also fell down before him. Humble posture. Later, a Samaritan leper, after he was healed, fell on his face and gave him thanks after he was healed. Well, this is a theme here. And now you have this paralytic being set before him in total humility. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself before the Son of Man will be exalted. You see the desperation. Now, the question is, is why did they do that? What were they looking to Jesus for? What were they expecting And what you will see is what the paralytic wanted first and foremost was for his sins to be forgiven because nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever grant saving faith to someone who didn't ask for it. We trust him for everything. Problems in life are all over the place. We trust him for everything. We go to him for everything. At the same time, when you think about what Jesus did, this is, this is a desperate situation. There's a health risk here, but there's a spiritual problem. Which one does Jesus address primarily? He addressed the spiritual condition of the man first, addressed the physical after. Now, when you think, okay, because the whole point about these revelations, about these accounts of who Jesus is, is so that we relate to him properly. We go to him for the right things. And if we look to Christ primarily, to fix our earthly problems that he himself, number one, doesn't prioritize and that he, number two, never promised to fix in this life, then life is going to be extremely confusing because you are going to keep looking to Jesus to fix things that you want him to fix only to realize that maybe he chose or chooses not to. And I thought about what this would be like if I took, if I took my son, uh, to Target and said, we are going to go to Target because I need to help you buy some supplies for whatever project your teacher gave you. Um, and we're going to go home and work on it. And that's why we're doing this. Dad is going to buy our supplies because you don't have money. You shouldn't have money. And dad is going to help you work on it because you need help. And if the entire time he was thinking that dad took me to Target to buy more Pokemon cards, then he will spend that entire hour in Target either confused or whining. Jesus has the entire universe in his hands. Life and death is in his hands. Everything is held together by the word of his power. But he came for the first time for one particular reason. As the Messiah, as the Son of Man, he came to deal with sin. And that's what we need to look to him for. And so Jesus, you would think, what would, a, what would a teacher then, a Jewish rabbi, we know how the Pharisees would have reacted. And especially, we don't know if this was on the Sabbath. We know especially how they would have reacted if this was on the Sabbath. Get out of here. We can't touch you because it's the Sabbath. Jesus in a very, very high profile event. I would like to know what, what point in the outline he was in when this happened. He was interrupted. 
But Jesus is interruptible. You see this. And it says he's, he's going to say something. He's going to speak in light of what he sees. And what he sees wasn't said. It was demonstrated. Seeing their faith, the faith of the men who brought him and the faith of the man who was on the bed, seeing their faith. Now you think about it. Why of all people, with everybody there, right? Why is Jesus then not singling out, which he will later, the high-profile people? Why talk to this paralytic, aside from the fact that he was just dumped in front of him? And you remember uh, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, where God says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. And this entire universe belongs to God. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? From my hand made all these things, and thus all these things came into being. God is not impressed with anything because all things were made by him and through him. He is not impressed with anything that we do because our lives are sustained by him. But he says to this one, in other words, God's eyes are searching, looking over the entire universe. To this one, I will look. There's a part of creation that catches the attention of God in a favorable way. To this one, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, the man who recognizes that before God he is nothing and the man who recognizes that before God he has sinned and is looking to God himself out of desperation to fix it and who trembles at my word. He hears the word of God and responds in total reverence. And so why is it that in the Gospel of Luke you see Jesus singling out in a favorable bay a leper, a paralytic, a Roman centurion, a prostitute, a bleeding woman, a Samaritan leper, and later on a tax collector. Because whenever somebody humbles themselves before God like this, his eyes will look and they look upon with favor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He saw their faith. What kind of faith was it? Was it? Faith that he would finally get this paralytic out of his paralysis and get him to walk? Back then, and sometimes, unfortunately, even till this day, a condition like this was linked to God punishing you because of your sin. So you remember the blind man in John 9? when the disciples who had been with Christ for some time ran into this blind man, and the very first thing they asked Jesus is, who sinned? In other words, what was the sin that caused this guy to lose his sight? This man or his parents that he was born blind, and Jesus said, no one sinned to cause him here, to cause him to be like this. He exists for the glory of God. So does this paralytic man. When Job lost everything, the foolish counsel of his three friends came from a presumption that the reason why he was suffering the way he did was because he was guilty of sin. There was a lady who I knew who lost her child 10 days after the child was born. And she said that some of her closest friends immediately began to exhort her to repent of her sin. That is how ugly false piety can get. 
And perhaps that was told to this man. If, you, if God loved you, if you were favorable before God, then you wouldn't look like that. But maybe what it did, perhaps what it did, is it made him realize that indeed, just like everybody else in that room, he was a sinner. And we know that he came to Jesus because of his sin. Because again, when does Jesus grant that kind of saving forgiveness for someone who didn't confess their sins? First John says, when we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This man, given his paralysis, given everything that he was missing out in life, it's a life sentence to be paralyzed like that in the middle of your life. But he went to Jesus knowing that he wanted his sins forgiven. And he looked to Jesus with, when it says seeing his faith, the faith exalted in the gospel of Luke, is saving faith. And Jesus sees it and speaks to it and says, friend, he's now not looking at the other guys who brought him, right? So you go from a desperation by these men to a declaration from Christ. And Jesus says, showing the priority to forgive sins, he says, friend, singling him out. Social outcast is now a special guest. Friend, just like he did to the bleeding woman, daughter, your faith has saved you. He says, your sins are forgiven. And when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he wasn't saying, I now feel good about you. You should feel good about you. What he's saying is you had sinned before God and warranted eternal punishment because of it. And the debt that you incurred before God because of your sin has now been completely erased. Sin requires punishment. And for God to forgive a person of his sin is for God to erase the punishment and the penalty that you and I justly deserve for everything that we've ever done against God. Jesus prioritizes forgiveness of sin like he did with this man because the spiritual is more important than the physical, because the eternal is more important than the temporal. Again, he can fix anything. Technically, I mean, you know that maintenance light that comes on when your car needs help? That turned on, and I've been too lazy to take it into the shop, so it's been on for about six months. Technically, he could fix that. All chemical energy... And physical energy and mechanical energy is in the hands of Jesus. But just, just because he can doesn't mean he will. He never even promised the paralytic here that he would get him out of his paralysis. He cares. He does care. We put every burden on Christ, on his mighty hand because of his merciful hand. Cast all your burdens on him. Anything that it's pressing down upon you, you cast on him because almighty God cares about you. He knows what it's like to be in your kind of system without the sin part of it, and he cares. But Jesus said he came for this and this reason only, to seek and to save the lost. He came to forgive because the first and foremost problem that we have, all of us have, is that we have sinned against an almighty God. All of us, and the wages of sin is death, and sin is real has to be dealt with both essentially, it needs to be removed from us. How do you stand before a holy God without the holiness of God? But it needs to be dealt with forensically. The punishment has to be dealt with. And our natural instinct is either to hide it or to try to repay it. We say that to people who we sin against. How can I pay you back? 
What can I do to make it up? Before God, we can't do anything. No amount of penance helps. No hope in the next life. You can have everything that this world has to offer. And everything, when you transition from this life to the next life, will be left, will be left behind except for your sin. And what are you going to do when you stand before a holy God and that sin wasn't dealt with? And so Jesus came to say, I came to deal with that sin, namely to forgive it. And whoever looks at the Son of Man, the Son of God, and believes in him and the person and the work that he did on the cross, risen from the dead, will be forgiven. The best news that you and I can ever hear, and it's news that it's possible to hear and promised, is that every transgression and every offense and every lawless deed, every evil act, every evil thought that you have committed against God himself has been forgiven. And that God will no longer hold any of that against you, but you become an heir of the eternal inheritance and eternal life, which is promised to you as a child of God. And what we do see here is true faith like this. No one else saw it. They may have thought he was crazy. They thought he was crazy. Likely, Jesus saw faithful people with saving faith. True faith never goes unnoticed like that. We look to him to forgive our sins because of his priority to forgive sins. But we look to him to forgive our sins because, number two, of his authority to do so. And here you'll see a, a confrontation between him and the Pharisees. Because he not only sees the hearts of the men who had faith, he sees the hearts of the men who doubt. And then you'll see a verification of what Jesus is being accused for. Verification against it. And it says, after Jesus says, your sins have been forgiven, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason. They're dialoguing, and they're likely doing it in private, which is what we like to do when we criticize people. You go to a corner, you whisper in someone's ear, and you start talking about them without them being able to hear you. That's the way we do things. It's not natural instinct when you have a problem with a preacher or a teacher to go up to them and confront them. The best, the best thing to do socially, is to gather your friends, especially if you're that cynical, and talk to them privately about what this guy's saying and accuse him without even asking him of something like blasphemy. And so they began to reason, and this is what they were saying, and we know what's going on without Jesus actually hearing them audibly. You'll see it later. And they say, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who is this? You'll see that repeated in Luke all the time. Remember when those disciples were in the boat and they said, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? They're afraid. And Jesus calms the storm and they're more afraid afterwards because they said, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. Who in, who in the world is this person that he talks to the weather and it listens? And then in Luke chapter four, they said in the synagogue, who is this that he commands the unclean spirits and they come out? And then Herod, later on, will say to John the Baptist, who is this man about who I hear such things? In other words, you see this all over in Luke because of the kind of person Jesus is. Who is this? Either out of amazement, out of faith, or out of cynicism. But one thing you know for sure is Jesus was never boring. So 
I was asked the question once, we had, to, had to write, we had to write a paper on it, which was, what's wrong with a boring preacher? <laughs> Lots of things. Um, he's not preaching. When you show people Jesus Christ and the entirety of the revelation that the Bible gives, people either get angry, they get amazed, they get afraid, they run to him in faith. No one ever says, that's boring. And no one did here either. You had people who were amazed glorifying God, and you were people who went out from that session plotting to kill him afterwards. Their response, not out of amazement, out of cynicism, was, who is this who speaks blasphemies? That was a serious charge. And they would hold on to that charge until the day they crucified him. They never let it go, even though Jesus spoke and proved that he was otherwise. Who speaks blasphemies. It was blasphemy, an insult to God, a dishonorable word against God. If you said that you had the authority to do what God can do, and only God can do, and you claim to have done it. Who is this guy who speaks blasphemies? Because who can forgive sins but God alone? In that sense, they're right. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Only God has the prerogative to forgive sins. What they didn't realize, or maybe they did and they denied it, was that Jesus is God. But Jesus, aware of their reasoning, now you see the omniscience of Christ here on display. He sees faith even when it's not spoken. He sees cynicism even when it's not heard. The hearts of every person is laid bare before Jesus, and he reads and exegetes every thought of faith and doubt that you and I will ever have. And then he dialogues with them and asks them two rhetorical questions. This, this would have freaked me out um, if I were a Pharisee, where he says, why are you reasoning in your hearts? In other words, I can read everything that you're thinking. And he's not being diplomatic here. He is being confrontational. He brings up in public what they tried to keep in private. And then he asks them a second rhetorical question. He says, which is easier to say? Not which is easier to do. He says, what's easier to say? Because the truth is, what's easier to do? forgiving sins or healing a person of paralysis. Both and neither. We can't do it. God can. We can't forgive sins. Only God can. We can't miraculously heal people apart from God's power. And in the Bible, you see people performing signs of healing, but you never see people given the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus isn't saying, which one's easier to do? He says, which one's easier to say? Between your sins are forgiven or to look at a paralytic who has probably been like that for a good amount of time, if not from birth, get up and walk. The first one is easier to say because you can't physically or visibly verify it. Whereas if you said that you were a man of God and had the authority of God himself, who has the life and breath of every creature in his hands, and you told someone who was paralyzed, get up and walk, and he didn't walk, then you would have just disproven in front of everybody that you were not who you said you were. Why is it so easy for Catholic priests, like the ones I grew up around, to tell me that my sins are forgiven? You know, those awkward confessionals where you go up and they say, what have you done, young man? <laughs> a lot more than you can think, but probably everything you did too. Uh, what have you done? Well, I thought bad thoughts. I disobeyed my parents. 
go say five Hail Marys and one Our Father. And you do it. And they say, I pronounce you forgiven. And as a young boy, you're thinking, well, can't deny it because how can you? How do you prove physically? How do you prove forgiveness? Why do you think there are a whole lot more false pastors than false doctors? Because you can verify medical healing. If someone says, right, I am an orthopedic surgeon and I am the best one in the nation and I have dealt with every single one of those problems that you have 600 times in the past month and I will heal it and he doesn't, then I can say, I think you're a liar. Or that piece of paper was made by your kid. It's easy to be a fake pastor because the things that you're saying deal with the spiritual which can't be seen. That's why the church has been plagued historically with so many wolves. There was once a, when I was going to this one vineyard church, uh, a prophet, I was brought to his Bible study, and he went up to me and said, God has told me that great things will happen to you. How do you disprove that? No matter what happens, he can say it's great, right? My kids will ask me that when they get those fortune cookies. Dad, is this one true? Is this one true? <laughs> well, <laughs> every once in a while, those, have you noticed those fortune cookies actually give you a rebuke? Um, <laughs> you should spend more time doing this. But other times, it's great things will happen to you. Or it is important for you to have friends. Well, I don't need to go to a fortune cookie to get that. But... Jesus says it is easier to claim your authority as God by saying your sins are forgiven because no one can tell you otherwise because it can't be proven than to say, I am God and I have the authority to give life and take it away, to give health and take it away. Therefore, as God, if I tell a man who is paralyzed, get up and walk and he doesn't walk, then I've just disproven my claim that I am God. Come to think of it, I've never had a Catholic priest actually do that in front of me. Where he would tell me, I thereby say to your hair, turn blonde. And it turned blonde. Because they can't. And neither do they have the authority to forgive sins. But Jesus says, and this is where not only did he show his priority, he shows his authority. But in order that you may know, in other words, the physical healing of this paralyzed man may not be the priority, but it serves for this purpose. In order that you may know, for your knowledge, you doubtful reasoners, that the Son of Man, remember Daniel 7, the Son of Man who comes down in the image that Daniel's been given in the vision, to whom all kingdoms and dominions have been given, who puts an end to all reign, and himself reigns over all the earth for all eternity, that the Son of Man, who Jesus claims to be, it's his favorite title concerning himself, has the authority to forgive sins. In other words, to show you that I can declare anyone forgiven or not. Now, when Jesus came, he did come with authority, lots of it. When he went through that wilderness in 40 days without sinning in the midst of Satan's temptation, he came as the new Adam in whom all of us have hope. He established his authority by his words and his teaching. It was different than the scribes and the Pharisees. He did it by his works. He spoke to angels and demons and they listened. He spoke to fish and they listened. 
He touched a leper and disease went away. And now he says, he goes a step further, sins are forgiven. Hearts laid bare, the condition of every man's heart is laid open before Christ. And some of us, hopefully most of us, all of us, are like this paralytic. And when he sees us, he sees faith. There may be some people here who are like these Pharisees who are reasoning with doubt. And when you read Jesus saying things like this, you think, how does a man like that have that kind of guts to say that? That's the confrontation. They tried not to be confronting. They tried to talk behind his back. But Jesus brings it to the open and says, so that you may know for proof that I, the Son of Man, have the authority to declare someone forgiven as God himself. He says, now he looks at this paralytic. This is an intense moment. I say to you, and everyone's watching, there's no prayer. There's no ritual. There's no chiropractic here. I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. I don't think they teach you that in medical school. When you see a paralyzed person, when you see someone fainting, when you see someone with a seizure, you don't tell them, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. You call 911. There ain't no 911 here. But God is in the midst. And he didn't do this in private like all those people who say they healed some person in some foreign country. Why is it always some remote country in Africa or Asia? Because they don't want it verified in public in front of these Pharisees in the crowd right there. Jesus didn't shut any door. He said in front of all of them, with everybody watching, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And immediately, key word there, not gradually, didn't take massage therapy to do this or any kind of surgery. Immediately, he got up, he picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home. <laughs> Jesus is God himself. The universe is held together by the power of his word. When God said, let there be light, there was light. And when God says, paralytic, get up, pick up your mat and go home, he gets up and picks up his mat and go home. And so what does this man do who had saving faith? I came to have my sins forgiven, and now, here's a bonus, I can move. And he went glorifying God, and he went home giving glory to God. Jesus didn't do anything for his own glory. It accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish, his act. And then the crowds began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, reverence, the proper response, just like those disciples were in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. And they said, we have seen remarkable things today. In other words, we have seen something that we have never seen before. And that is what every person realizes when they look at the face of Jesus. We have someone before us who is unlike no other and has done what no other has done as the Son of God and the Son of Man and the hope for humanity. People like to say, I need to learn to forgive myself. Problem is, you don't have the authority to do that. Um, if someone broke into my house, and so all everything that I had, 
and went home and came back and said, I know I did something wrong, but I want you to know that I forgave myself. I can say, but I have not forgiven you. His verdict and his verdict alone is what counts. And God takes no vote. Jesus didn't ask the Pharisees, well, what do you guys think? The greatest message you can ever hear is for God himself to tell you that your sins are forgiven. And he has. And the promises, if you place your faith entirely on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the life that he lived and the death that he died on behalf of your sins so that all your sins can be forgiven, they will be forgiven. And, you know, I mean, you think the kind of freedom I finally experienced after 10 years of wondering, how is my sin going to be dealt with? And at 19 years old, looking up to the sky at 11 p.m., September 25th at UCSD, thinking, God said that if I believe my sins are forgiven and when the Holy Spirit goes in you and lets you know by that internal testimony that your sins have been dealt with, and I remember thinking, nothing looks the same after this. And there is freedom that is not just probable, it is promised to everyone who falls on his face at the feet of Jesus and humbles himself before Jesus. And so what do you do with something like this? What do you do with an account like this? Jesus says that the reason why he told his disciples this at the end, before he ascended back into heaven, that this repentance and forgiveness of sins, Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world. That's why it's so wrong to be judgmental as a Christian. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God did not send his son into the world to judge it, not for the first time, but so that the world might be saved through him. Therefore, to his 12 disciples, this is what you need to do. The forgiveness that you saw me granting people by my own authority, that forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in my name to all the nations at the end of Luke. We spend our lives telling people that sin can be dealt with because Jesus paid for it. The only proper response to, is to humble yourself before him as a sinful man before a sinless son of man. Because he is like nobody. Unlike anyone who has ever walked this planet before and after. And I remember there was this one young lady who asked me, struggling with doubt with her faith, which is normal. Even John the Baptist did. And she said, I have one question for you. So what's the question? Why Christianity and not anything else? And I said, you tell me who else died for your sin and rose again on your behalf. He commanded demons, and they obeyed. He commands the winds and the waves, and they obeyed. And he told a leper, be cleansed, and he was cleansed, and he told a paralytic, get up and walk, and he got up and walked, and he declared a man's sins forgiven, and they were 
forgiven. If the Son of Man himself, Jesus Christ, has the authority to declare sins forgiven, then we as sinful men need to humble ourselves before him as the one who promises forgiveness to those who look to him in saving faith. And this is a foretaste of heaven, isn't it? Everything about it. We live in a sinful world that when he comes again and establishes that eternal kingdom, we'll no longer be sinful and curse-filled. You know, Pastor Cliff mentioned Jim Roskup, his professor, who was actually my professor as well, um, as the guy who told him to. Jim Roskup was known for a few things in the seminary. And some of you actually hear, some of you actually know him. He was known for um, his prayer syllabus. I was used to, in, in college, those syllabi that were about three pages long. Jim Roskup's was 300 pages long. He was known for that. He was known for the guy who would make your papers bleed with red ink. There was one time where someone submitted a paper and the TA said, very good job. And then Jim Roskup crossed out the very. He was harsh. He was known for his prayer life. Um, he would pray and pray and pray. And he was also known for his love and his devotion to his ailing wife who had been on an oxygen tank since she was 15 years old. And while we were in the seminary, after 53 years of marriage and being on an oxygen tank for that many years and more, she finally went to be with the Lord. Um, and in her funeral, they asked Jim, how do you, I don't know why you would ask a guy this, how do you feel? And he said, as grieving as he might be, he is picturing her taking her first full breath of air. And that is what heaven will be like. You get a foretaste of heaven just by looking at this passage. Jesus will say to the lame, get up and walk, and they will get up and walk. And Jesus will say to the blind, look and see, and they will look and see. Remember what that lady said who spent her entire life blind, and they asked her, what are you looking forward to most? And she said, death, because I will finally open my eyes and see Jesus. And he will say to those who are hell-bound, who were hell-bound, your sins have been paid for, and they will be declared before Almighty God justified. He has come on one mission, like he said, to seek and to save his lost sheep, and he will not lose any of them because they are the ones who he purchased with his blood, you and I included, to him we belong, in him we trust. All glory to Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we can't do ourselves, but that he has promised, that you have promised through him. And we thank you that sin can be dealt with, that we no longer have to walk around with the guilt and the burden of sin. And we pray that the faith that we exhibit towards you would be saving faith. We pray that that would be strengthened by the accounts that we hear from your word. And we love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.